Trump for Speaker. And the Idaho 4 murders affidavit is made public and holy smokes, it's creepy. This is a Propaganda Reports Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. I want to start with a quick announcement. This upcoming Sunday, January 8th at 8 p.m., for anyone who lives in the Atlanta area, I will be performing in a two-person improv comedy show at a theater called the Dynamic El Dorado Theater in Atlanta. Again, 5 bucks, 8 p.m. It's a small theater with a beer-only bar. If you're in the area and uh, you're interested... Come down, hang out. I'll be hanging out there after the show. And once that theater closes, we'll be hanging out at some of the nearby bars that stay open a little bit later. So come on down if you got nothing else to do. And I'll buy you a beer. If you do come down, let me know. Either send me like a Twitter DM or find me either before or after the show. I do want to put a little bit of a caveat on this, though. This is an experimental improv show in a progressive theater in downtown Atlanta, which is totally cool with me because I'm used to that. I've been in this environment for over a decade now, but I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. And everybody I've ever met at this theater, though, even though they disagree with me politically, and if they ever listen to the show, they'd probably hate me. I think they're totally cool. They're nice people. And the person I'm performing with is who you know as the voice of Trump occasionally on this show. In fact, on this very episode, the voice of Trump is a good friend of mine. He's a comedian and an actor. He was in the reboot of Footloose. He's in Righteous Gemstones. You can see him in a lot of movies, actually, a lot of commercials. He's everywhere. And Ism Kant, if he's listening, had a drunken conversation with uh, my friend who I'm going to be performing with in Fayetteville at a show at a live meetup about a year and a half ago, and neither one of them remember it. So, it's, it'll be a good time. We'll have some drinks and we'll have some fun. It is experimental comedy, though. And I would have given you guys a little bit more heads up, but I just found out myself. I, I was asked a couple of days ago. So I, I just wanted to put it out there if anybody hears this in time and is interested. And my friend is one of the funniest people I know. Hilarious. And I'm completely relying on him to carry the show because I'm totally out of practice. Come on down and let's have some beers. For the majority of the show today, I'm going to be going through the Idaho 4 murders affidavit that presents the evidence in support of the warrant, the probable cause warrant. And it's pretty wild. It's pretty creepy, just in a number of ways, and you will see later in the show. But because that's going to make up most of the show, before we dive into that, I figure we ought to start with what the biggest story of the past day, three days actually, has been, which is this never-ending Speaker of the House vote story. Three days ago, I had no idea that there was even a Speaker of the House vote going on, but now after watching 72 straight hours of some woman tallying votes over and over again on Capitol Hill, I now know that history is being made. And thank goodness no other news in the world has happened that could interrupt this history playing out right before our eyes, because I don't know what I would do if I turned on the television and didn't see whoever that woman is just looking around Capitol Hill over there in Congress tallying votes. I would get separation anxiety if some other news story was being reported on at this point because it's just been round the clock. I mean, it's crazy how much they want us to focus on this to the exclusion of everything else. Even Vladimir Zelensky is like, Come on, man. This history that's being made is that 
After three days of voting and seven ballots, we still don't have a Speaker of the House, which is something that hasn't happened in over 164 years. That's right. It hasn't taken this long to elect a Speaker of the House since before the Civil War, shortly after Joe Biden got out of grade school. And according to the media, because of this, America is just in complete chaos. I mean, we just we're a chicken with our with a head cut off because of this. The BBC saying that, our news media saying that. One branch of the American government, one of the three, has gone limp. And and it's the Republicans' fault. It's the MAGA Republicans' fault is who they blame it on. No bills can be presented, no committee heads can be named, new member elects can't be inducted with whatever weird ritual they have to go through in order to be inducted. And they're making videos with it. There's one guy who made this video with AOC. He's like, I was elected and I haven't been, uh, you know, sworn in yet. Oh, like he's a victim. He's being victimized by this. So I feel very sad for that person. Personally, I think this is just a bunch of theater. I think this will be resolved by January 13th when the staffers of all of the people who are working in the House of Representatives are no longer getting paid. And as soon as that happens and these House of Representative people have to go get their own effing coffee, well, then they're going to come to a deal because they don't like getting their own coffee. So I think this is all pretend until the 13th, at least. I don't think it's going to go any further than that. Now, ultimately, I do hope that the solution, that the new Speaker of the House is someone who was finally nominated today by Matt Gates, not the most likable person in the world himself, but today... He nominated the person that I think we've all been waiting to be nominated, and that is Donald J. Trump. I was surprised that it took this long. Nominate Trump was trending on Twitter before the first vote even happened, so I I, I thought that he'd already been nominated, but it just finally happened today. And Steve Bannon actually presented this idea over a year ago. I covered the story here on the show. So his thing was you, you get Trump in there. As a Speaker of the House, you impeach Biden, you impeach Kamala, bing, bang, boom, bing, 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 you got Trump as president, okay? And seems ridiculous, sounds ridiculous, it's 2023, Joe Biden is president, John Fetterman is a senator, and Lizzo is a sex symbol. Nothing is ridiculous in 2023. So can Trump be speaker? Absolutely. He can. Any of us can be speaker. I can be speaker. You can be speaker. Your friend can be speaker. Lizzo can be speaker. All they have to do is get nominated and get enough votes. A few years ago, in fact, progressives wanted to nominate Stacey Abrams instead of Nancy Pelosi. There was a couple of times where that was the talking point in the media. So Trump can be. Is it a realistic possibility? You know, Manstink says probably not. However, at this point, I really don't know. It would certainly be the most entertaining outcome, I think. I mean, with that, even if you don't like Trump, come on. Trump with a gavel, that, that's, a great, that's a great couple of years to keep everybody distracted from the, you know, the World Economic Forum, complete transformation of society, whatever. But as you can see on screen here, well, let me get this from predictit.org. It's a political betting website. I talk about it every now and then on the show. Trump now has the third best odds to win the speakership. So predict it is it's a political betting site and it's like buying shares. So it's between zero and 99 cents. If 99 cents, it's like 99% of winning. So just look at it like percentages, basically. And you see here, Kevin McCarthy is up there at 53% or 53 cents still leading the way. Number two, Steve Scalise at 28 cents. And number three, tied with Elise Stefanik and Jim Jordan, is former President Trump. So with that said, 
With that said, joining us to talk about this nomination and what a Trump Speaker of the House might be like is the former president himself, Donald J. Trump. Mr. President, welcome to the show. How are you doing? And congratulations on your nomination for Speaker. I'm, I'm doing really well, Brad. Thanks again for uh, having me on your show. It's always a, a good time to come and talk to you. Uh you caught me right before I was about to go do some polar bearing. Some what? Uh, polar bearing. I'm into uh, cryotherapy these days. Oh, you're going to go take like an ice bath. Yeah, it's it's really good for your pores and your skin. I've been watching Joe Rogan do it, so I decided to get one of my own. That's awesome. I mean, we should all really be doing what Joe Rogan's doing. But let's get to the question of the hour, Mr. President. How do you feel getting nominated well, for the you know, Speaker of the House? I, I think the chaos is hilarious. A lot of people don't think that I uh, that I have the fortitude for such a job that takes so much of a time commitment. But, I mean... They don't think you can I, fill Nancy Pelosi's shoes? Yeah, I know. It's absolutely ridiculous. All she does is smack a gavel around and tear up speeches. What would you do with that gavel in hand? Well, you know, I'd, I'd do my best to uh, to be as fairly as possible to undermining Joe Biden as much as I could. The first thing we would be doing is going to impeach Joe and Kamala. Kamala, yeah, yeah, right. Are, are you worried Kamala. about the dangers that that you might face as Speaker with that gavel in hand? I mean, you know, uh, it's it's really been brought to attention that it is a dangerous job. Look at uh, look at poor Nancy's husband. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, true. pornographic sex offenders are just chasing uh, the the spouse of House speakers around with hammers. I wouldn't want that to happen to Melania. No, never. I wouldn't right. want it to happen to any of my children. You know, they're no, constantly targets already. Right. We're just going to put a bigger target on their back. That was just a little bit of the conversation that I was able to have with former President Donald J. Trump. If you want to hear the rest of that satirical conversation, you can subscribe to one of our subscriber-only feeds, patreon.com slash propaganda report, rockfin.com slash propaganda report, propreport.locals.com, and you will get the rest of that conversation as well as the other DNBXR material that I will be talking about today. Okay, now I'm going to talk about this affidavit, which was made public today for the Idaho 4 murders case. The presentation of the probable cause evidence that justified the judge giving the warrant over so that the police could go arrest Brian Koberger, the suspect in the case. And this affidavit is interesting for a couple of reasons. It reveals that this suspect, if he is in fact the killer, had been planning this for quite some time, stalking the house out for months in advance, possibly trying to throw police off with some of his activity with his cell phone, and that he also went back to the scene of the crime just a few hours after committing the murders between 8 and 9 a.m. before police were even aware of what had happened. Really creepy stuff. And one of the roommates also saw him, one of the surviving roommates. It's a, it's, it's a pretty creepy and gives you an insight into kind of who this guy is a little bit. I mean, this is obviously not all the facts that they have in evidence. This is just enough for them to get that warrant. But you really start to think that maybe this guy thought he was going to get away with this. And that leads me to the other interesting thing about this affidavit. It's that 
it reveals just how police and FBI use private and public surveillance video, not from just in the area, but from around the country. Cell phone data handed over by AT&T, eyewitness interviews, and DNA genealogy, among other things, to track this guy down. It's quite extraordinary. He must not have taken some of these classes because he obviously didn't think about just how easy it is to for authorities to be able to pinpoint where someone has been at just about any point in time. It's crazy, actually. I'm glad they caught the guy, but some of this stuff is like, wow. So I'm going to go through that. I'm not going to read the entire thing. It's 18 pages. I tried to highlight the most relevant portions that we haven't talked about yet, although it ended up being like my highlighting jobs I would do when I was in college and law school. Once I start highlighting, it's just page after page after page of nothing but but highlights. So this does get more the the affidavit the deeper in, the more really interesting it gets. So I'm going to skip around a bit. Okay, you see it up there on screen. Exhibit A, statement of Brett Payne. That's a police officer. Now, this is a guy who is laying out the evidence in this affidavit and asking for the warrant. And he starts off by taking us through or taking the reader through his first introduction to the crime scene. He shows up at the crime scene and one of the other officers walks him through and he's describing what he saw during that first experience that he had with the crime scene. I'm going to skip down to page three if you're, if you're reading along. He says, and he's talking about when he first saw Madison Mogan's bedroom, which is where Madison and Kaylee Gonzalez, where they were found murdered. And here's what he says. As I entered this bedroom, I could see two females in a single bed in the room. Both Gonzalez and Mogan were deceased with visible stab wounds. I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side. Mind you, they haven't actually found the murder weapon, but they have a sheath now, or they've had it for a while. The sheath was later processed and had Kabar, I think that's a knife brand, I might have said that wrong, USMC and the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor's insignia stamped on the outside of it. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA suspect profile left on the button uh, button snap of the knife sheath. So they got DNA off of the button snap of the knife sheath. Now that's interesting to me, especially when you hear more of these details in this affidavit, that that sheath was left there. I am wondering if it was intentionally left there. Maybe he didn't realize that there would be DNA on the button to maybe throw them off because it had some uh, had that insignia stuff on there because I don't think this guy was in the military. It just feels like that was placed there intentionally because if you come inside a house and you have a knife in a, a sheath and then you go to leave a house, you're either holding the knife trying to put it in a sheath or... You're just carrying a knife. So I'm wondering if that was placed there by the suspect as a red herring and he maybe made a mistake. And then it says, as part of the investigation, numerous interviews were conducted by Moscow Police Department officers, Idaho State Police detectives, and FBI agents. Two of the interviews included BF and DM. Both BF and DM were inside the King Road residence at the time of the homicides and were roommates to the victim. So these were the two surviving roommates. BF's bedroom was located on the east side of the first floor of the King Road residence. Now skipping down to the bottom of page three. DM and BF both made statements during interviews that indicated the occupants of the King Road residence were at home by 2 a.m. and asleep or at least in their rooms by 4 a.m. 
This is with the exception of Kernadel, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. Law enforcement identified the DoorDash delivery driver who reported this information. That's that's interesting. A DoorDash was there at 4 a.m.? DM stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the south side of the second floor. DM stated she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by what she stated sounded like Gonzalez playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which were located on the third floor. A short time later, DM said she heard who she thought was Gonzalez say something to the effect of, there's someone here. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Kernadel's phone showed this could also have been Kernadel as her cellular phone indicated she was likely awake and using tic- the TikTok app at approximately 4.12 a.m. That's kind of, that's crazy. I mean, the murders were happening like right in this window of time. That, that's, I guess she was watching TikTok. DM stated she looked out her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. DM stated she opened the door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Kernadel's room. DM then said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. That's creepy. At approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, a residence immediately to the northwest of 1122 King Road. 1122 King Road is the house where the murders happened. And that house down the street picked up distorted audio, or across the street, it picked up distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m. So the dog was barking. The security camera is less than 50 feet from the west wall of Kernadel's bedroom. Now that's interesting there. Just a number of reasons the police were keeping this information to themselves because they said the opposite when asked about the dog and whatnot. And the fact that a security camera outside the house, it was less than 50 feet, so it wasn't far. But you don't even think about that when you're in your house. There's cameras on other people's houses and on businesses nearby that could be picking up things that you're saying and stuff going on in your house. Now, it's helped them catch this guy here, but it's just one of those things you don't consider when it comes to the technological state we live in. DM stated she opened the door for a third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. DM described the figure as five foot ten or taller, male, not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past DM as she stood in a frozen shock phase. The male walked towards the back sliding glass door. DM locked herself in the room after seeing the male DM did not state that she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the crime scene. So that's creepy. That I mean, we did not know that before. I was curious about why the roommates were kind of... It's almost like they were in police protection. And this does make sense because, as I mentioned, you'll, you'll hear in a minute, that guy went back at like 8 a.m. And this is a, an eyewitness. If he knew that, he might have tried to kill her. And so they were probably protecting her until they caught the guy. And this outfit that he's wearing, black clothing, a mask that covered both his mouth and nose, that to me 
tells me that this guy was thinking ahead of time how to prevent DNA evidence or anything from his body getting out. So that's a pretty strong indication of premeditation there, which that's pretty obvious at this point. The combination of DM's statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from BF and DM's phone, and video of a suspect vi- video as described below leads investigators to believe the homicides occurred between 4.20 a.m. and 4.25 a.m. Which, if a Uber driver or Uber Eats show was there at 4, I don't know how they could occur at 4, and there's some more stuff they say down here, which it makes you think that window is actually even tighter. Like, maybe between... 418 and 427 or 28. You'll see what I mean here in a second. During the processing of the crime scene, investigators found a latent shoe print. This was located during the second processing of the crime scene by the ISP forensic team by first using a presumptive blood test and then amino black, a protein stain that detects the presence of cellular material. I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard anything like that described. I'm sure it's probably been around a while. But the fact that it took them two times past the crime scene, it must not have been an obvious footprint. Like, I would think they would have seen it the first time. And I guess this technique revealed it. The detected shoe print showed a diamond-shaped pattern similar to the pattern of a Vans-type shoe sole. Those are Van-type shoes there on screen there. Almost like Skechers or something like that. I wonder why he chose that type of shoe or if that, I feel like he probably chose it for a reason. I I don't know. I've never had those shoes. So that shoe print was found on just outside the door of the surviving roommate's bedroom. Wow. That's, that's creepy, man. This is consistent with DM's statement regarding the suspect's path of travel. As part of the investigation, an extensive search commonly referred to in law enforcement as a video canvas was conducted in the area of the King Road residence. This video canvas was to obtain any footage from the early morning hours of November 13, 2022, in the area of the King Road residence and the surrounding neighborhoods in an effort to locate the suspect or suspect's vehicle traveling to or leaving from the King Road residence. This video canvas resulted in the collection of numerous surveillance videos in the area from both residential and business addresses. I have reviewed numerous videos that were collected and have had conversations with the other MPD officers, ISP detectives, and FBI agents that are similarly reviewing footage that was obtained. A review of the camera footage indicated that a white sedan, hereafter Special Vehicle 1, or Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed traveling westbound in the 700 block of the Indian Hills Drive in Moscow at approximately 3.26 a.m. and westbound on Steiner Avenue at Idaho State Highway 95 in Moscow at approximately 3.28 a.m. Now, I don't have a map or anything that shows how close or far away this was. I did look at it, but the map they put in this warrant is not great. And yeah, I didn't pull up the Google Earth thing. I, I, I think this is a few miles away, if I recall correctly. On this video, it appeared suspect one vehicle was not displaying a front license plate. This is all part of how they tracked it down. It's just the detailed the connections they're making here. It's just really interesting. A review of the footage from multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood showed multiple sightings of suspect vehicle one starting at 329. Okay, this is when he was casing the place. Starting at 329 a.m. and ending at 420 a.m. These sightings showed suspect vehicle one making an initial three passes by the 1122 King Road residence 
and then leave via Valentia Drive. So he drove by the house three times before he went in. I guess he was trying to figure out if they were asleep, if the lights were going out, or maybe amping himself up. Based off my experience as a patrol officer, this is a residential neighborhood with very limited number of vehicles that travel in that area in the early mornings. And upon review of the video, there are only a few cars that enter and exit this area during that time frame. Look how short of a period of time this is. Suspect vehicle one can be seen entering the area a fourth time at approximately 4.04 a.m. When suspect vehicle one is in front of the King Road residence, it appeared to unsuccessfully attempt to park or turn around in the road. The vehicle then continued to the intersection of Queen Road and King Road. That's probably behind the house, if I had to guess, where it's a little more obscured. Suspect vehicle one is next seen departing the area of the King Road residence at approximately 420 at a high rate of speed. So if he didn't, if he was still in his car before he went in, I think that's what this is saying, at 404, Let's say he parked shortly thereafter at like 4.06, maybe took a minute or two to get in, 4.08, 4.09. And then he's seen speeding away at 4.20. You got to account for at least a minute or two to leave the scene. So that'd be like 4.18. So he did this in a matter of like nine minutes, it seems like, based on this timeline they're giving us. Law enforcement officers provide a video footage of suspect vehicle one to forensic examiners with the FBI that regularly utilize surveillance footage to identify the year, make, and model of an unknown vehicle that is observed by one or more cameras during the commission of a criminal offense. The forensic examiner, his specific training includes identifying unique characteristics of vehicles, and he uses a database that gives visual clues of vehicles across states to identify different differences between vehicles. I wonder what that database is called. After reviewing the numerous observations of suspect vehicle one, the forensic examiner initially believed that the suspect vehicle was a, between 2011 and 2013, Hyundai Elantra, but then, upon further review, indicated it could also be between 2011 and 2016 Hyundai Elantra. As a result, the investigators had been reviewing information on persons in possession possession of a vehicle that is a between a 2011 and 2016 white Hyundai Elantra. And they did put that notice out. Investigators were given access to video footage of the Washington State University campus located in Pullman, Washington. A review of that video indicated that at approximately 2.44 a.m. on November 13, 2022, a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of the white Elantra known as Suspect Vehicle 1, was observed on the WSU surveillance cameras. Yeah, that showed him getting on the road to go towards Moscow, Idaho. That's how they're connecting all these dots here, these, all this camera footage showing the tracking of where this car was. At approximately 2... Or 5.25 a.m., a white sedan, which was consistent with the description of suspect vehicle one, was observed on five cameras in Pullman, Washington, and on WSU campus cameras. The first camera that recorded the white sedan was on Johnson Road. The sedan was observed traveling northbound on Johnson Road. So they're, descri- they're again connecting the dots, showing that this is, in fact, the car that they have been tracking from Moscow, or starting there in Pullman, to Moscow, and then back to Pullman. So the timeline here, if we look at this, he left Washington State, Pullman, at 2.45 a.m., went to Moscow, cased the house for over an hour, and then entered the house around 
I got 4.04 here, but now that we've been talking through this, it feels like around probably 4.10 a.m. when, you know, he was seen attempting to park and all that. And the affidavit includes an image, a very poor image, at least on the affidavit anyway, it's a PDF document, but it shows the path of the white Elantra that is believed to be the suspects. It showed the path it traveled during these time periods. And what's interesting about this image to me is that it marks where all the surveillance cameras were that captured the car on camera and revealed the direction in which the car was traveling. And as you can see, if you're looking at this image on screen here, there's cameras all over the Washington State University area. I mean, they're everywhere. At least a dozen of them or so that I'm seeing based on these arrows. I don't know that specifically, but that's what it looks like. I mean, they are everywhere, and I'm sure that's the case, not just there. That's not a rare and since they're everywhere, everywhere. Okay, on November 25th, the MPD asked area law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for white Hyundai Elantras in the area on November 29th. So that was long before they asked the public about tips about if they've seen a white Honda Elantra. So police, for most of the time, up until they apprehended the suspect, said they had no suspect. They had no clue what was going on. So that obviously wasn't true, and I think we knew that the whole time. On November 29th, Around 12.28 a.m., Washington State University police officer Daniel Tingo queried white Elantras registered at WSU. That's smart. As a result of that query, he located a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license. That vehicle was registered to Brian Koberger. So they had an idea of this suspect before December. And his apartment is just three quarters of, of a mile away from where the car was last picked up on one of those cameras in Pullman. That same day at approximately 12.58 a.m., Washington State University officer Curtis Whitman was looking for the Hyundai Elantras and located a 2015 Hyundai Elantra in Pullman in the parking lot in the apartment complex that houses WSU students. The officer says he reviewed Koberger's Washington State driver's license information and photograph. The license indicates that Koberger is a white male with a height of of six feet and weighs 185 pounds. Additionally, the photograph of Koberger shows that he has bushy eyebrows, which is what the roommate said. Koberger's physical description is consistent with the description of the male DM saw inside the King Road residence on November 13th. Further investigation, including that a review of the Latoff County Sheriff's Deputy Duke's body cam and reports showed that, now listen to this, on August 21st, 2022, this is a couple months before the murders. Brian Koberger was detained as part of a traffic stop that occurred in Moscow, Idaho. At the time, Koberger, he was a sole occupant of the car driving the white Hyundai Elantra. With a, it had a Pennsylvania plate at the time, but it, that plate was set to expire. So that's why he has a Washington plate now. During the stop, which was recorded via a law enforcement body cam, Koberger provided his phone number which is called the 8458 phone number in the document here, as his cellular telephone number. Investigators conducted electronic database queries and learned that the 8458 phone number is a number issued by AT&T. On October 14, 2022, some month before the murders, Brian Koberger was detained as part of a traffic stop by a WSU police officer. This guy gets pulled over a lot, doesn't he? Upon review of that body cam and report of the stop, Koberger was the sole occupant, and he was driving that same Honda car. 
And on November 18th, 2022, this is five days after the murders, according to a Washington state licensing, Koberger registered the 2015 Hyundai Elantra with Washington and later received a Washington license plate. So he kept his Pennsylvania license on his car until after he committed the murders, and then he changed it. But they were still able to pinpoint that and figure that out with the help of lots of surveillance cameras, obviously. Investigators believe that Koberger is still driving the 2015 white Elantra because the vehicle was captured on December 13th, 2022 by a license plate reader in Loma, Colorado. So he's in Loma, Colorado on the 13th. I I think that's before him and his dad drove from Washington to Pennsylvania. And it says that he was there. What was he doing in Colorado? Colorado is actually one of the places where Ted Bundy killed three people. And so is Idaho, now that I'm looking at it. Yeah, what was he doing there? I mean, at first you think it's part of the trip home, but it doesn't say his dad's there. It says he was by himself, and, and I'm pretty sure this is before. I know that him and his dad were stopped by police, I think, on the 16th of December, I believe. I don't know when they left, but they were stopped in Indiana, I think. It says here, Koberger's Elantra was then queried on December 15th, 2022, by law enforcement in Hancock, Indiana. On December... 16th, I think that is the pullover from the body cam footage that we've seen. On December 16th, 2022, at approximately 2.26 p.m., surveillance video showing Koberger's Elantra in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. So was this December 13th when part of the trip? I don't understand what's going on here. The sole occupant of the vehicle was a white male whose description was consistent with Koberger, the sole occupant. Koberger has family in Altsprite, Pennsylvania. They learned this through a, a TLL, TLO search and local tool database query, whatever that is. Based on information provided on the WSU website, Koberger is currently a PhD student in criminology at Washington State University. Pursuant to records provided by a member of the interview panel for Pullman Police Department, we learned that Koberger's past education included undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. These records also showed Koberger wrote an essay when he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. He tried to be an intern for the police. Koberger wrote in his essay that he had interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. Koberger also posted a Reddit survey, which can be found by an open source internet search. So I told you about these questions in the show I did on New Year's Eve. And this is part of the, the affidavit, the warrant. The survey asked for participants to provide information to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. I would like to see all the answers he got to that, to see if the methods he used were based on the information he got from them. And I'd also like to know what his thesis was about. I'm sure he's had to write theses as a PhD student and a master's student, a graduate student. As part of this investigation, law enforcement obtained search warrants to determine cellular devices that utilized cellular towers in close proximity to the King Road residence on November 13th, 2022, between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. Let me read that again. As part of the investigation, law enforcement obtained search warrants to determine cellular devices that utilized cellular towers in close proximity to the King Road residence on November 13th, 2022, between 3 and 5 a.m. So they were able to determine 
any cellular device between that used the cellular towers in that in that time period. That's interesting. After determining that Koberger was associated to both the 2015 White Elantra and the 8458 phone number, investigators reviewed these search warrant returns of the cell phone data. A query of the 8458 phone in those returns did not show the 8458 phone utilizing cellular tower resources in close proximity to the King Road residence between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. So this is what I'm talking about where he was trying to throw investigators off, although he didn't seem to do a very good job of it. Based on this police officer's training, experience, and conversation with law enforcement officers that specialize in the utilization of cellular telephone records as part of investigations, individuals can either leave their cellular telephone at a different location before committing a crime or turn their cellular telephone off prior to going to a location to commit a crime. This is done by subjects in an effort to avoid alerting law enforcement that a cellular device associated with them was in the particular area when a crime is committed. The cop says he also knows that on numerous occasions, subjects will surveil an area where they intend to commit a crime prior to the date of the crime. Depending on the circumstances, this could be done a few days before or for several months prior to the commission of the crime, which, which seems to be the case here. During these types of surveillance, it is possible that an individual would not leave their cellular phone at a separate location or turn it off since they do not plan to commit the offense on that particular day. So they have the forethought to not bring it with them or turn it off when they commit the crime, but not when they surveil prior to committing it. And I think that is how one of the ways he got caught here. On December 23rd, 2022, I applied for and was granted a search warrant for historical phone records between November 12th, 2022 at 12 a.m. and November 14th at 12 a.m. for the 8458 phone held by the phone provider, AT&T. This is approximately 24 hours preceding and following the times of the homicide. On December 23rd, 2022, pursuant to the search warrant, I received records for the 8458 phone from AT&T. So AT&T handed over the phone records. These records indicated that the 8458 phone is subscribed to Brian Koberger at the Pennsylvania address, and the account has been open since June 23rd of 2022. So that's interesting because that's right around the time he graduated from that other school with his master's in criminology and a little bit after he did that survey about how people felt when they commit crimes. Makes you wonder about the intent of getting that new phone because he did change his license plate after committing the crimes I'm wondering if you had a couple of phones, but obviously this is the phone that helped police link to him. These records also include historical cell site location information. Interesting. CSLI, they call it, for the 8458 number. After receiving this information, I consulted with an FBI special agent, SA, that is certified as a member of the Cellular Analysis Survey Team, CAST, Cellular Analysis Survey Team. The FBI has that. Members of CAST are certified with the FBI to provide expert testimony in the field of historical CSLI, which again is the cell site location information, and are required to pass extensive training that includes both written and practical examinations prior to being certified, as well as completion of yearly certifications. Additionally, the FBI CAST special agent 
So the cellular analysis survey team special agent that I consulted with has over 15 years of law enforcement, which includes six years with the FBI, just providing the credibility statement here for the affidavit. And from the information provided by CAST, this officer was able to determine estimated locations for the 8458 phone number from November 12th, 2022 to November 13th, the time the court authorized. And on November 13th, 2022, at approximately 2.42 a.m., the 8458 phone was utilizing cellular resources that provide coverage to the 1630 Northeast Valley Road apartment in Pullman. So he was using the cell towers around his apartment, the Coburger residence. And then at approximately 2.47 a.m., the, the phone used cellular resources that provide coverage southeast of the Coburger re- residence, consistent with the 8458 phone leaving the Coburger residence and traveling s- south through Pullman. So they checked the cell phone towers in that period of time, at his location where he lived, and then on the path to Moscow to see if he was pinging those on those dates and times. And he was. So this is consistent with the movement of the white Elantra. At approximately 247, they're continuing to show the courts that they were able to continue to track this car. The 8458 phone stops reporting to the network which is consistent with either the phone being in an area where cellular coverage, without cellular coverage, the connection to the network being disabled, such as putting the phone in airplane mode or the phone being turned off. So the phone traveled from his place down the road to Moscow, but then turned off at a point in time before arriving. The 8458 phone does not report to the network again until approximately 4.48 a.m., at which time it utilized cellular Resources that provide coverage to the Idaho State Highway 95 south of Moscow, Idaho. So he sped out of there at 420, drove around for a while, and then at some point in time, turned his cell phone back on. Between 4.50 a.m. and 5.26 a.m., the phone utilizes cellular resources that are consistent with the 8458 phone traveling south on Idaho State Highway 95 to Janice, Idaho, then traveling west towards Uniontown, Idaho, and then back into Pullman. So I don't have the map, but it appeared that he was kind of driving around to make it appear that he was, I guess, not in the area of Moscow because the direct path, he didn't take the direct path back from the house to Pennsylvania, not Pennsylvania, excuse me, to Washington, Pullman. It's like he drove around maybe to make it look like he was somewhere else or going in another direction. All right, so I'm going to go through a little bit more of this affidavit in the D&B portion of the show and then continue this conversation along with the rest of that satirical conversation I had with the former president in the DNBXR. So if you want to get access to that, patreon.com slash propaganda report. That is the subscriber-only portion of the show. That is how I support the show and am able to continue producing content. So you can subscribe there. You can also, if you want to help out the show, you can leave a five-star review and a kind comment that warms my heart. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I do read them and it helps me out a ton. I need to start reading them on the show is what I'm going to do this year. I have a lot of resolutions that I'm going to be implementing into doing the show. Uh, Last year was a tough year. I'm sure it was for a lot of people. It definitely was for me. And I have a lot of things that 
I want to accomplish with the show this year. And prioritizing stuff like that is one of them. So thank you for everybody who has continued to support the show and who has said wonderful things. It really does. It helps me so, so much. And I, I appreciate it. So that is another way to support the show. You can also check out the website, propagandafight.com. You can subscribe or you can follow me on Twitter at, at freedomactradio.com. I'm on YouTube at youtube.com slash Brad Binkley and Propaganda Report or Rumble slash Propaganda Report is the Rumble channel. All right. Here's the last piece of the affidavit I'm going to go through on the DMB. But why would he turn his cell phone back on? I guess he needed directions. So I guess this shows when we rely on our GPS systems too much and we can't remember roads well and use regular maps, that if we turn our cell phones back on and we just committed a crime, well, we're going to wish we knew how to use a map, a physical map. Because that has to be why. Why else would he turn his phone back on? Unless he's trying to ping these locations, but there, there would be no reason to do that. At approximately 5.30 a.m., the 8458 phone is utilizing resources that provides coverage to Pullman, Washington, and consistent with the phone traveling back to the Coburger residence. The movement of the phone is consistent with the movement of the white Elantra, so they cross-reference, cross-check the white Elantra with the movement of the phone that, that is observed traveling north at around 5.27 on the video surveillance. And based on the review of the phone, the estimated locations and travel, the 8458 phone's travel is consistent with that of the White Elantra. It's just interesting the way they're piecing together this story and this evidence to justify the warrant. Further review indicated that the 8458 phone utilized cellular resources on November 13th, 2022 that are consistent with the 8458 phone leaving the area of the Coburger residence at 9 a.m. and traveling to Moscow, Idaho. So he went back to the crime scene at 9 a.m four hours after committing the crime, if he committed the crime. Specifically, the 8458 phone utilizes cell utilized cellular resources that would provide coverage to the King Road residents between 9.12 a.m. and 9.21 a.m. So he went back to the crime scene and hung out there for nine minutes. There were reports of the front door being open on the house between like eight and nine, where the murders happened, that they never really gave an explanation to. Is that related to this, I wonder? I mean, how creepy is that? Maybe he was going back to get that sheath. But again, that sheath to me seems like it was put there to be discovered. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up right there for the DMB. And I'm going to continue the conversation in the XR. As I said, thank you guys for listening, for watching. We will talk to you next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.